here in Minnesota, it still feels very much like fall. The leaves are still changing. They haven't all fallen down to the ground. It's been a remarkably warm fall. How about down there in Nashville? It has been warmer longer than I thought it would be. But yeah, we're getting there. Don't get me wrong. Winter's right around the corner. In fact, they're predicting snowfall tomorrow. That was quick. But here's the thing. Since early summer, our road has been under construction, and they suddenly started to realize that they're running out of time. We suddenly got these announcements put up on our streets on Friday that says no parking. And the reason is, is they're going to repave everything. This does give me good ammo because they're actually topping the, the streets in my neighborhood and have claimed that they've got to hurry up and do it because once it rains or gets cold, they can't do it anymore. So I just assumed you guys didn't have paved streets based on that information. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 355. Chris Boyer, Reed Smith, here as always. Looking at the fall leaves that are going to be covered in snow tomorrow. Well, we got a little bit of rain, but that uh, shouldn't have any snow. Uh, fingers crossed I'm still wearing a golf shirt. So, <laughs> Thank you all for, for tuning in for another episode of Touchpoint. If you're new, uh, welcome, certainly. We want to give a quick plug on a couple of items. One being the website, touchpoint.health. Second being the TPS report, which you'll notice on the aforementioned website. If you uh, give us your name, your email address, you'll get an email on Monday mornings each week with five articles to kick off your week. Hopefully a little value add for you, the listener. Also, be on the lookout in said email and on social channels, et cetera, for the year-end kind of survey and feedback uh, that we typically ask for. It should be super easy to find. You can reach out to us. You can subscribe to the email. You can check out LinkedIn. You'll see a little call to action, our survey, I should say, that we uh, would certainly appreciate uh, your feedback on. So again, go towards the awards, but also helps us know what you're interested in. And uh, again, I know many of you have done this kind of throughout the year, uh, and we certainly appreciate that as well. So we'll pause here again. Touchpoint.health is the website. Sign up for the TPS report, and uh, and we'll take it from there. So we'll uh, pause for a minute and then be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. I'm excited about today's episode. It's a little bit different than maybe what what we've done in the past. Uh, We've had a few episodes kind of like this. There are more of this philosophical take, if you will, on the industry or a topic or something like that. We've done it around AI and some of the new things that we've seen coming. But we've also done a lot of shows through the years that are pretty specific about a strategy or even a tactic or kind of our thoughts around things. Had a chance to catch up with uh, Quint Studer. Those that that know the name know that he's been in healthcare for a long time. Well, as the Studer Group, I should say, late 90s, early 2000s. Obviously, before that, was uh, working in hospitals and healthcare and all that kind of fun stuff. But had a chance to catch up with him as of late of kind of what he's doing now. We'll get to that interview later. But we talked a lot about how we got to where we are. And it kind of got me thinking, 
we do a lot of these where we look at studies and this time of year or first of the year of what's to come and predictions and things like that. I love when we look at these, like, you know, trends and predictions. We even make our own predictions. And then usually at the end of the year, we look back and say, oh, our predictions didn't come true. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's kind of the point of today, right? It's like, how important is that? Kind of the thought process. You know, the industry is changing. It's changing pretty rapidly. Will we continue to make predictions? Yes. Will we continue to look at, will you and I continue to look at studies and predictions and what other people are thinking? Of course, I think that's a good use of time. We'll continue to do that. But wanted to kind of think through that a little bit. You know, I've talked a little bit on the show about the role that I'm in and kind of the the reimagining of, of what it is that we do and kind of how we think about the department and structurally and even more as an industry terms and different things that we've used. It's an interesting way to kind of start thinking about we're going to get to a place where do you persevere with those kind of thoughts and predictions? Do you pivot? You know, those types of things, right? So thought it might be kind of interesting to go back and look at some of the things that were written in the past and then also kind of talk about how that relates to today with some of the things that we're seeing. Um, and then, of course, we'll, we'll hear from Quint. So Yeah, I think this is a good idea, Rhi, to kind of do this. If we're being a little edgy with the title of this show. Don't get us wrong. We, we do like using research and data to try to make some good predictions or good, to determine some good trend lines of what's happening. But there are some things that happen in our society, in technology, in our industry, whatever it might be. That make it so hard to really be accurate 100% of the time. We feel kind of like, you know, like we started off the show, right? It's like predicting the weather. You're accurate some of the times, but not all the time. Maybe that's my new title. The Feels Like Technologist? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it feels like AI won't be a big thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe we go down that path. I, I like that idea. You don't really have to be that good at it. And definitionally, nobody knows what you're talking about. So, yeah, it all works. And when we say there's a 30% chance of adoption of uh, AI-enabled EMRs, that just means 30% of the entire region that we talk about. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Not that you might do it. So, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, but just thought it'd be interesting. We'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll kind of, t- you know, kind of give our take as we go. And, and again, we're not going to hone in too specifically on, on any particular trend necessarily, but just kind of wanted to think for a second, you know, of how we, we view the world and, you know, where do we go from here? There's this article in the Washington Post that talks about the technology and why the future of technology is hard to predict. Maybe we could use that as a little bit of a grounding for our conversation. You want to touch yeah. on that a little bit? Yeah. And, we, and look, totally agree that what we do is not 100% technology focused, but again, it, it calls out just kind of, again, philosophically, some kind of interesting points here. One of the things that they call out is one of the most famous living futurists, and I don't know how to say his last name, Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil, predicted back in 1999 that by 2019, okay, so okay. we've since passed that, robots would educate us conduct business on our behalf, adjudicate political and legal disputes, do household chores, et cetera. Huh. Sounds like that, that's happening. Yeah. I mean, you can make the argument, certainly, you know, you got the vacuum, you know, Roomba, for example, the vacuum cleaner, household chores. Is it really doing all household chores like the Jetsons or something like that? Nah, probably not. Right. So it's like, how true was that? And again, you conduct business transactions for us. Okay. I mean, we get into like online scheduling and stuff like that. Like, does that count? Right. Like the devil's in the details to some extent, but not crazy far off. No, I think it's pretty close. I mean, when you think about that, and trust me, I think we all have the desire to have robots do a lot of this for us. I mean, if I could have a robot do all of the household chores, I'd do that in a heartbeat. Conduct business transactions. I tell you, if I could find my own personal chat GPT to answer my emails, I would love that because in that way I can focus on the actual work. But to a certain extent, you have to take this with a grain of salt, right? Because this is like predictive, hey, this is what's going to happen in the future and we're going to have flying cars and we're going to have this and that. We're not all going to be there. No, I don't know that we're going to have flying cars. And I. this is one of those things where I and mean, again, we were talking about this off air, but Nate Bergazzi, the comedian, was on Saturday Night Live. And 
you know, one of the things that, that he mentions is talking about like when his daughter, maybe he said this in the monologue, I think when his daughter like graduates high school or something, it's like the year 2058 or whatever, which sounds like a made up year. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's a little bit how I think about some of this. It's like you start thinking about like in the time 1999 to think about 2019 seemed like, you know, that was only 20 years in the future, but that, that almost didn't feel real. And I think that's where we find ourselves sometimes with some of these items is like, I don't know what that means. Like that, it doesn't feel right. Like it, it's hard to reconcile the date and kind of what the prediction is, right? From a timing perspective. It does sound like you are the feels like technologist here, Reed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning into it. I'm leaning into it. Maybe we could talk about because they actually quote in this article an author of a book called The Efficiency Paradox, where this author lays out three reasons why it's so hard to predict technology. Let's just quickly touch on those just to give us some grounding here. The first reason why it's hard to predict technology, how it's going to change the world, is because of reverse salient. It's sort of like a stubborn bottleneck. So think about this, right? We don't have a universal cure for cancer, and we haven't extended our lifespan a little bit over 100 years old. And even with a fantastic breakthrough in energy this month, we have made such slow progress on making clean energy. So we're reluctant to predict that we're going to be solving these problems because it just doesn't seem like we're going to get there. Yeah, or you're just making like empty promises. Like, surely we'll be able to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you don't see a path to it. Yeah. The second one he calls out in here is that some inventions just don't beat rival technologies to the market. And they give an example in here about Albert Einstein and, and you know, designing a refrigerator. But at the time, refrigerators used some sort of a toxic gas that potentially leaked, killing entire families. Well, that's not great. You start looking at what the prediction is. Again, it's easy to point to like generative AI because we've talked about it a lot lately or AI in general or something like that. But people maybe are reluctant to say that we're going to solve these problems based on what they know today because it's hard to understand what the competing technology is that might overtake that or change the landscape altogether. Yeah, absolutely. I'm still stuck on the fact that Albert Einstein designed a refrigerator. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a whole nother episode. Uh, so the third problem with predicting the future is that sometimes social, cultural, and psychological factors keep predictions from coming true. Like who would know that we would have had a global pandemic? There are other things that are at work here. For several years after the first sheep was cloned, for example, there were predictions that we would clone people. But society really had a big backlash around this idea of cloning people. So even though the, the technology is there, doesn't mean that we can accept where we're going to go. And maybe that's like sort of a byline for what we could call generative AI, right? Even though the technology is there, we're not all 100% certain of where it's going to go. This is that whole, just because you can doesn't mean you should yeah. argument. So it's not that we maybe can't build or solve or fix something, but at what cost? And so you kind of have to weigh that, like these things don't happen in a vacuum necessarily. Well, let's take a break here, Reed, and when we'll come back, we'll talk about some healthcare trends that were done a while ago, and we'll, we'll kind of ground ourselves around that to see how this works from a predictive perspective. Can we predict the future of healthcare technology? We'll do that right after this pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, Live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, Chris. So also as an aside for those who've been listening, uh, I did just get a freeze warning uh, come through on my phone. Which, oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Can't predict the weather. 
Yeah, it's 50, it's 50 degrees here. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. Anyway, just wanted to keep everybody up to date. So, all right, let's continue the conversation here. I, again, mentioned Quint Studer coming up in a little bit. And we talked a little bit about early days of the Studer group and kind of the thought process around uh, his first book, which is called Hardwiring Excellence, right? And kind of some of the philosophical thoughts there. Thought it would be interesting to go back and look at an article that came out about the time, not really, well, pretty close to the time the Studer Group started, but also kind of as I got into healthcare about what these predictions were be. So this at the time was a National Library of Medicine article, uh, came out January of 01, and it was talking about the 10-year uh, trends for the future of healthcare and what the implications were, in this case, for academic medical centers. But I thought it'd be interesting to kind of go through and kind of talk about what we thought the trends in the future of our industry was going to be at the time. And then, you know, kind of think about, well, what does that mean for us? Are we, we at another kind of inflection point now with the technology and the you know, integration of things like AI and kind of where, that's, where that may take us? Yeah. And these, it's interesting. They had 10 10-year trends for the future of healthcare read. From 2001, and I can't even remember what it was like in 2001 to think about it, they actually are surprisingly accurate in terms of what they believe the trends are. Mm -hmm. So in this particular case, they made some, some decisions about where the healthcare industry is going, and they were pretty right on here. The first one they call out is uh, more patients. So they talk in here about the fact that individuals 65 and older will be dramatically increasing and the ability to treat these patients with, uh, you know, obviously chronic diseases like CHF or something like that to, you know, lengthen their lives is the number of people with heart disease in the U.S. is expected to double, they say. So again, I, I think something like that, an economist or somebody smarter than me could probably predict and so they were. They were they were pretty close, right? So as of twenty twenty three, the prediction that the number of people with heart disease in the US would double in the next thirty years did come true. According to the American Heart Association, in 01, 64.1 million Americans had some sort of cardiovascular disease. By 2021, it had increased to 121.5 million. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we basically, in all essence, doubled. Okay, well, that's, a, that's an easier one. You're right. Like a statistician could probably make that, that determination. They also put something out there that says more technology, and they got a little specific about this. Obviously, there's more technology from 2001 until now, but... They got into things like improvement in less invasive imaging, electronic technology will increase efficiency, EMRs tied directly to billing. These things are seem somewhat predictive. And I have to say the 2023 update largely has come true. The advancements in genetic diagnosis and treatment, less invasive imaging, less invasive treatment, DNA chip technology, EMRs, automatic billing, they've all transformed the way healthcare is delivered in the U.S. So Again, while they were kind of looking at major movements going on in technology, they came pretty close to hitting the nail on the head on that one. Thinking about when we, where we were at the time, right? I mean, the idea that there'd be more technology is fairly safe bet, but it's interesting the way that they scripted that out, right? And kind of talked about some specifics there. Uh, kind of along those lines or hand in hand with that is more information. Uh, so they say in here is technology improves, the information for deriving from patient care will also improve. <laughs> it's funny. They say with the internet and its successors. Oh, which is kind of funny to think about. This in here, which among other features will provide important safeguards for confidentiality. Hmm. Not sure if that came true. Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember. Anyway, it says the EMR will not only be able to store patient information, but also provide information on best practices instantaneously. So here's what's funny. We're just kind of now getting to some of this, this idea of kind of the next best action relative to the EMR and kind of what should happen there. I think that's kind of an interesting point. Is correct. So the 2023 update is largely come true. Uh, advances in technology, you know, certainly there, there's no there's no arguing that there's more information. I mean that 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 is that is yes that is true, but there are still some challenges. Obviously, we talked about the privacy one there for just one second, or kind of glossed over it. That's kind of an interesting one. So these are things that are again a little bit more concrete, easier to look at when you're predicting trend lines. There's also a trend in 2001, healthcare consumerism, 
And so their, their fourth trend line was that the patient will become the ultimate consumer. As patients surf the web and as employers perhaps no longer choose the health plan for their employees, patients will become the ultimate consumers. Measures of patient sat and patient-oriented report cards will assume increasing importance. And there's also this uh, increasing focus, they say, around the need for wide geographic coverage of health plans to sell to employers. So that partially came true in this particular case, and that's because of what we talked about before, these aforementioned other factors coming in. Patients are indeed more like consumers in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Patient SAT and patient-oriented report cards are important, increasingly important, but the need for wide geographic coverage for health plans is decreasing. It's going the other way. And that's because of the legislation that's kind of moving things more towards a state-by-state level regulation. So in this particular case, they got like two out of three, right? Right. But they missed a big one here. Yeah. Still gets you into the Hall of Fame in baseball, though. So, um, But I think, you know, the ultimate consumer, right, patients, I think we are headed that way. I think still a lot of what we do is about us, not about the consumer. Again, just at a very broad level, right, or high level, maybe. But that's an interesting one. The next one they mention is different delivery model. They say with improved availability of data to the public, processing outcomes will improve. Those not capable of, of, of achieving the best outcomes will likely improve or stop doing the procedure. And they say in the next 10 years, the processing outcomes will be optimized for a significant portion of patients with relatively common diseases. With uh, these patients, care will become more regularized. Uh, making it possible to develop uh, a better understanding of the best care for delivery models. They say, so the example they give, it'll be possible to measure the outcomes of nurse practitioners, general physicians, and specialists in the management of certain diseases and determine the best utilization of each, creating a better handoffs. So when I first opened up this article and saw different delivery models, I was thinking side of care. And I think that that is starting to you know kind of make that shift. I do think the quality metrics and things like that that exist today, yeah, I mean, again, data to the public, there's a lot of transparency initiatives. We've talked a lot about them. It's kind of true, partially true. The availability of data certainly has improved for sure. But I don't know that it's the understanding of best care maybe is understood like within a closed health system or within a certain provider group or something like that. I'm not sure that it's broadly understood. It's interesting that they call out too that there's a there may be a shortage of physicians and that would lead to optimizing the care model. Well, I mean, we're dealing with that right now. There's a shortage of not only physicians, but nurses and other types of care providers. Yeah, clinicians altogether. There there are still some areas where that could be improved. Another one they said here, sixth in the list, is opportunity for innovation. Now, I'm just going to say right here, if you're going to make one of your trends to be there's a better opportunity for innovation in the future, (laughs) I I think that's kind of like you're just calling it in now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little bit, a little bit of a cop out there. In this particular case, though, they're saying right as care for many patients become more regularized and process and outcomes data become similar, competition among practitioners will be based less on who has the best outcomes for care and more on the ability to innovate. This has partially come true. Competition among practitioners is indeed shifting from focus on outcomes to focus on innovation. We talk about that in many cases, particularly in in uh, new types of care delivery models are going to, that's, that's really driving it. And um, one of the things uh, in the prediction, they said it's going to favor academic health centers. Well, AHCs are well positioned in our environment today to support this, but it's also important to know that the shift to new care delivery models is still in its early stages and mm-hmm. it's likely to take a number of years before these models become the norm. It's too early to predict is what they're saying. Well, the next one, I mean, we're talking about phoning it in. <laughs> Costs will increase. Oh, shocker. You know, but no, they, they talk in here. I think it's really interesting when they talk about the fact that <laughs> with more efficient billing and less wasteful tests, procedures will be done better and more efficient, et cetera. That's a lot of assumption there, right? That efficient billing and less wasteful tests and procedures. 
But anyway, they, they talk in here about an increase in, you know, cost around certain, uh, they call, you know, are calling out again, kind of thematically here, this chronic cardiovascular disease state. Yes, it, this is true. Um, I, I'm sure most everything's more expensive now. I just don't know that while we probably have made some headway around some efficiencies and things like that, I don't know that we're quite as cleaned up there as maybe they were thinking when they were talking about increasing cost. Here's another one that I don't think they have the true line of sight to. Remember, this came out in 2001. They said uninsured will increase. As costs rise, major payers in the private system, the employers will attempt to reduce their costs by reducing coverage and increasing the burden on the employee. And then that this will just have sort of a domino effect to cause the cost of caring for the insured will be increased significantly. So this is partially true. If we look at it from a 2023 perspective, employers have reduced coverage and increased the burden to the employee. Workers are less able to afford health insurance. There have been more uninsured in the marketplace right now. And the cost for caring to uninsured has shifted to AHCs, the government and private insurers. It's kind of a bad cycle, a vicious circle, right, as they call it. But it's important to note that in 2010, the passing of the Affordable Care Act expanded access of health insurance to, by creating new marketplaces. So what they found is a different way to actually try to solve this problem by keeping some kind of health insurance model in place. And next one, providers will be paid less. Ooh. They're talking here about that all providers are being paid approximately the same amount as uh, payers, whether the government or private insurers. As costs increase, health plans will pay those increases to those that must, you know, they got to reduce payments somewhere. You know, it's like one pie, I guess, that you're, you know, divvying up here. Um, and so the priority for payments will continue to include their own administrative costs, pressures to the bottom line, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it, it is largely true. Uh, providers are paid approximately the same amount as the majority of payers. They are reducing those payments in order to, you know, offset a lot of those costs. I think this is where we get into, you know, the argument for value-based care and ACOs and, you know, more holistic care for the patient. Really, the prediction here if they had to refine this uh, looking back would be not so much that providers are paid less, but that there's going to be a shift in, you know, the way people are paid or compensated for taking care of patients. The last thing they talked about is a need for a healthcare reform. They said between five and 10 years from 2001, the situation would become critical for Americans. The cost for employers would continue to rise causing many to desire exiting the healthcare business entirely. The number of uninsured people will continue to increase. Uh, they're painting a pretty bleak picture here, tell me, <laughs> right? So this prediction, by the way, or this trend line that they, they, they indicated, has partially come true. The cost for healthcare has continued to rise. Some employers have exited the healthcare business. Uh, they rely now on the ACA. The number of insured people have increased. And the gap between what's affordable and what's not has widened. And the ranks of the uninsured have extended to the present middle class. But again, it's important to note that the ACA has been successful in reducing the number of uninsured Americans. And that kind of has put a, a temporary stopgap. That's not to say that we don't need healthcare reform. We really, really do. But I think part of the problem, though, Reed, is we're kind of working within a system that's a little bit hardwired, right? It's a little hard to change. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a great tee up for the, for the conversation that I had here recently with, with Quint Studer. So Quint is a mini no formed and had a company called the Studer Group for many years. And we were able to talk about the idea of hardwiring and rewiring and what the new world looks like, you know, post COVID and, you know, topics like burnout and things like that still being very real and how we operate within this space and what that means for our teams. So uh, we'll take a quick pause here, be back with Quint and uh, look forward to everybody hearing that conversation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right. Well, I'm here with uh, with Quint Studer. Uh, many listening, I'm sure, know the name. And if you've been around for a handful of years at least and been at a hospital, certainly, I'm sure you've probably worked with the Studer Group at some point in history. But Quint, thanks for coming on and, and spending a few minutes. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about... You know, hardwiring excellence was such a, a big piece of, of a lot of a lot of us on the hospital side or the healthcare provider side of the equation. Rewiring excellence, hardwired to rewire, um, is is your newest book, and uh, wanted to kind of touch on a few ideas there. But maybe just to start, where did this idea come from? I'm sure there's been some conversations through the years, but what kind of led you to to write this this piece? Well, thanks, Reed. Um, the Studer Group was purchased by Huron in 2015. In 2016, I left and went on a five-year sabbatical, which some people would call a non-compete. And um, I didn't know if I'd be back or not be back. Um, COVID, of course, came. I stayed involved with some boards. I'm on the board of TriHealth out of Cincinnati. I've been on the board of CAMI which accredits healthcare administration programs at the master level. And I've also been on the, I'm on the board still today of all those and Hazleton Betty Ford. So right around a couple of years ago in March, I got a phone call from someone that said, we really like to do your stuff, but we're having a rough time finding it. Do you know anybody that could help us with the studer stuff? And I said, well, I can do that. And they said, you can. And I said, yeah, it's legally now I can do it. And um, but it's interesting, lead read because I've always wanted. To, I don't think we should rush into things before a diagnosis, and I've always been a diagnostician at heart. And so I said, but before we jump into stuff, let us diagnose your organization. And we basically did an assessment with them. And we looked at the various components of selection, supervisor, coworker, your skill building, your self care, and your efficiency. And it became very interesting as we went through it that, you know, certain things. So one of the first things we did read, I'll remember, is they had a lot of early turnover. So of course, we took out the old hardwiring blue book, which says, well, if you have a lot of turnover, you use behavioral based interviewing and then you meet with the staff, the new person, the 30th and 90th day. Got real excited. We were going to pilot it or I call it operational trial. And, um, you know, we had high hopes. Well, then all of a sudden, when we looked at the operation trial, it was a huge, colossal flop. And the reason was, is because Airmark found out, and I like Airmark Healthcare Plus a lot, they're willing to do these things, that for housekeeping and food service workers, some of them didn't stay 30 days. And this is not an Airmark issue. This is an everyone issue. There are certain job classifications that people come in, it's so much different than they think they leave. So, okay, well, that throws out the 30 and 90 day thing. So we've got to be more flexible. Then I started meeting with a lot of nurse managers. And again, these were all good things. Um, And I asked them questions about their workload. And what we found, Reed, another diagnosis we found is about 25% of people in leadership or more became leaders during the pandemic. People quit. They got promoted. Um, They had never done this before. And so their workload and their scheduling and they're all learning. So I met with a number of nurse managers and I'd ask them some questions. And, you know, rounding has become such a big deal. And I would just say, what are the rounding expectations? And they said, well, we're supposed to round on every patient every day. I said, wow, that's a lot. When I was president of a hospital, we never did that. We rounded on our new admits. But, you know, things drift and they get... We keep in healthcare, we're great at adding things, but not great at taking things away. So then I said, Well, how many questions are you supposed to ask? And they said, Well, we got this rounding app, which they almost make faces when they say it. We have this rounding app, and we're supposed to ask five questions. And I said, So how many patients do you have on your unit? And this one first nurse said 42. I said, Wow, 210 questions. That's a lot of questions. What are the odds of you doing that every day? And she looked at me like, That ain't going to happen. 
I said, then what do you put on your rounding app? And of course, that was another sort of uncomfortable conversation. So it hit me with, is it doable? Is it doable? And, and I, I think, again, hardwiring still has great themes. I mean, I was talking to Sharp Healthcare the other day and they used the pillars. I like that. It's a theme. We should always select well. We should always engage well. Every theme is still there. Just like the theme of using a phone is still there, but it's a different phone today. Um, and look at cancer care. Since immune therapy came about about 16 years ago, it's changed completely. Though we want to take great care of cancer patients, we use different tools and techniques today than we did 20 years ago. So I found one of my biggest battles of rewiring is hardwiring. People just couldn't stop hardwiring on this stuff. And then Tom Dahlberg came out with some data that showed that things like patient experience hasn't moved since 2016. So, you know, that whole idea of something's quits working, you start saying, well, then should we change it? So we started, I call it, you know, trying things like less questions, one question. We had one organization. Because the other thing that came about, Reed, and I know I'm going on real long on this one, is there's new, I'm into research. And Catherine Meese at University of Alabama, Birmingham, has done a ton of research on healthcare employee engagement. And the biggest negative we have today is, is trust. Not trust in my supervisor. That's gone up. During COVID, I like my boss better. I like my supervisor better. They were with me all through COVID. But they don't trust the organization. Sometimes because COVID made it less visible, we canceled training, backed off on war, all stuff that COVID caused yet for the employee is still a trust issue. Now, if you look at trust, I think subconsciously we might tell you, I don't trust you. You know, your wife, Becca, you trust her. But if you said to her, Becca, I trust you, but I want you to fill out an app every day on what you did during the day so I can hold you accountable for doing things. I don't think the, the relationship's going to gain any strength. So we had one organization actually pause their app in January, and they're still now waiting for someone to complain they don't have it. Now, I understand that clinical work, they say $600,000, by the way, um, clinical work. But I think sometimes with all good intentions to document rounding, we made it go from a relationship to transaction. Thus, Looking at things differently, I said, sometimes we need to, if it works, keep it hardwired. But if it doesn't work, let's rewire. And we've been doing some cool little techniques across the country. And we've got some decent results in my book. There's some things we have no results from because it's an ongoing book. So one of the things, you know, a living book. So retention. Um, we're piloting an MUSC healthcare in Charleston, South Carolina, um, personal retention plans for new people. So when a new person starts, you say, hey, I want you to stay here. We're gonna create a retention plan for you. Now, we don't know if that's gonna work. My gut tells me it is. Just then telling people we have a retention plan might work. So the book is filled with stuff we've piloted that works and some new techniques. And probably the biggest rewire is how we train and develop people. Because what we're learning is when we call it organizational effectiveness, how do you make an organization effective? You make it through individual effectiveness. And what we're finding today is just like with patients, we treat a patient as an individual. We now need to look at managers as individuals. They're different ages, different experience, and truly create individualized development plans. So I think the biggest rewire in the book, Reed, is rewiring how we develop talent. That's really interesting. It kind of hits home for me. I, I, you know, when I when I started doing this twenty years ago, I was the director of marketing and communications at a community based hospital. It was pretty straightforward what my job was. Right? You know, there was I was cutting ribbons in town, and we were doing. You know, you're doing some of this historical marketing function, and in amongst that time, you probably remember. Our organization had signed on with, with you guys at the student group, and I got handed to be the initiative champion of this new program, 
right, for lack of a better word. And at the time, I remember thinking these felt like two totally different worlds. This idea of patient experience and this programmatic aspect that the student group was bringing and then the director of marketing and communications. And now I fast forward 20 years and I almost can't delineate where one starts and the other one stops. And it's just all the same thing anymore. So when you're talking about rewiring, are you seeing that too in just the way that we participate in healthcare, right? I mean, you've always talked about it's always a calling. It doesn't mean that, you know, just the clinical folks have a calling. Everybody has a calling that's working in this field. Are you seeing that across the country that people that have these legacy jobs, marketing's just one of them, is participating or kind of even rewiring the way that they think about what they do? Yeah, I think it's rewiring. It's sort of like, you know, you and I are sports people. And in sports people, they use analytics. And I think the same thing with this. You have to look at your patient base, your community, as analyze that better. So, for example, we go into an organization um, with, let's say, um, again, patient experience, just as this example, you have to look at your patient base. You know, is there a difference between ages of patients? Is there a difference between races of patients, genders of patients? Is there um, some equity challenges with patients? Is there a difference between where the patient came in, how they came in? So with just one size doesn't fit all, you know, just like your children. You know, your children are all individuals. One size doesn't fit all. So I think what we're really finding is really looking at the individual. So, for example, try health care. Um, we looked at trust and they took two questions out of their employee engagement survey and said, we're going to focus on these two questions, but not with everyone. These two questions are, do I feel the information I'm getting is open and honest? And do I willing to share my concerns with my supervisor? Those are trust issues, safety issues. But then they broke down their, their leaders into cohorts. They have some that did great on those questions. You should learn from them. Some that did good, and we should learn from them and, and enhance them. And then they had a core that just didn't do well. They were below the 50th percentile in both those questions. But individually, we use things like the DISC, you know, behavior. We use things like helping them frame things. We looked at their database. Is it more younger employees felt like way versus older employees? Did experience matter? And then and we started in November and they did their employee engagement survey in June, exact same one. We moved those two questions up 32 percentile points by using a very individualized approach. And it's also recognizing the human difference. Another organization, CNO, sort of frustrated. She felt that the nurse managers didn't have the urgency she has. Well, that's probably when we studied her personality utilizing an assessment tool. She is a no hold barred outcome oriented person. And I guarantee you she probably came from the emergency room at one time. Okay. But we also assessed her, her nursing managers and 18 of them were what you call very pace was the most important thing to them on a job. Five of them structure was the most important thing on the job. Um, and about three of them were like her. So that means when she gets up in a room and says, we've got to have urgency, 18 of them are saying, well, let's talk about the pace. How are we going to do this? The structured people. So the pace people are going to talk about timelines and how do we do this? The structured people are going to say, well, tell me exactly the steps we're going to take. And, and if you use the tools right, you can go in and the pace people could say, how do I work with this outcome oriented person better? The outcome oriented person says, how do I work with this pace oriented person? better. So it's really identifying differences. So again, if, if you're today, if you're diagnosed with cancer, they're going to do a tissue and it's really taken what I would call precision medicine read. And it's called really precision organization patients N equals one doctors N equals one. Um, and so do um, employees and leaders. And uh, again, one example, we've done this for years. In surgery, even though we wanted standardization, we always had a preference sheet for each surgeon. 
and that could ask them what type of temperature they wanted, what type of music they wanted. So we individualized, not everything. We still standardize some things. We individualize it. So it's, it's really taken precision, the, the concept of precision medicine and bringing it into operational performance. And I, Reed, I've done this enough now. When you explain it, particularly to middle managers, their anxiety goes way down because they're overwhelmed. So last story. So we go into an organization and they want to do leadership training for their managers. And they had a whole bunch of topics, how to hire better, how to onboard better, all these wonderful topics. When the survey came back, 82% of the nurses said their number one thing they needed to know right now is how to schedule. That they started during COVID and they've never had to schedule without travelers and without, with less overtime. The second thing they wanted is how do we use all this financial software that the system has? Because we really don't know how to use it. So we can teach all this other stuff, but shouldn't we teach this thing that the leader says they need the most? Because the number one concern for middle managers today is I don't know if I can do this. And we want them to do it. So we call it making it doable. How can we make it doable? It's interesting. I've had the opportunity to kind of reimagine what my function in the organization and my department does within the organization. And one of the first things I looked at was even just the terminology that we use, you know, that some of this stuff has existed for so long. There's all these preconceived ideas and baggage attached to a word. And I think Again, I'm talking as an industry, when you say the word marketing, I think most people hear advertising, right? That's, that's the way, that's what they visualize, outdoor boards, radio, TV, things like that. And what we're really talking about is a little bit of like what you're saying, which is this one-to-one connection. We're just talking about precision-based engagement to the consumer. And so how have you thought about terminology? You mentioned hardwiring. And, and now kind of move into this rewired scenario. And, and obviously that, that's very procedural or process oriented, but even just the terminology in which you use, have you guys seen how that impacts either, you know, post COVID or just in recent years, how people participate and receive information? Well, hundred percent, you know, Reed, I've been with you. My first job in healthcare was director of marketing, community relations and director of marketing. And they wanted to know when the next billboard was going up when the next radio ad was going to appear. And, and, and one of the things that a, a mentor of mine said, well, before you do some ads, why don't you do some consumer research? And, and when we did the consumer research, what we found out is we, the community, it was all about, anyway, for us, the, the community saw us one way and we saw ourselves another way. So how do you get into what the community wants? So, yeah, I think wording is very important give you a couple examples. Um, healthcare system sent me their stuff that and the, and the topic said um, HCAP scores. What the heck is an HCAP score? You know? <laughs> no, it isn't. When, when, so when I communicate with, with people, employees, I would say, let's talk about what our patients are saying about us right now. That's a little bit different. Um, the other day, a CEO was trying to explain, and he said, well, we're doing it for business reasons. Well, well, that's not going to turn on. So anyway, here's my example. A, a machine wasn't working well. He wanted to get it fixed because as long as the machine wasn't working well, they could not do some tests on a patient. And he said, well, we got to get it fixed because this is costing us a lot of revenue. Now, I will guarantee you some radiological technologist is not going to get motivated by that comment. What if we say we need to get it fixed because it's really important we get these test results done as quickly as possible to help this patient heal? I'm a huge believer in you have to frame things in a way that resonates with the person who's hearing it on, on comprehension. So, yeah, I think we have to relook at words and, and terms. And, you know, for, for many times, there's different types of here, here's and I could go on for weeks. Um, uh, George Washington University's MHA program interviewed me about a month ago and, and I was a little frustrated and they asked me a question about executives and I said, I'm starting to hear certain words. So when you talk about in training or development, because research by the American Nurse Association through Jocelyn Insight 
shows that nurse managers desperately want training and development and frontline workers want training and development. Yet you'll hear some executives call it an expense. The leaders like I know see things as an investment. So, so now I'm not saying your training's good or bad, but when I hear somebody say, gee, that's awful expensive. I think they don't understand the return on investment you can get. We were talking about mental health yesterday. I was in a board meeting at Bethesda and they're doing some great funding of adolescent mental health. And they're putting mental health workers in the pediatrician's offices. So um, the doctor can immediately go to mental health. And the question was, is that a good return on investment? And I said, well, I, I think it really is. If you can study, you're probably going to see a whole bunch of less visits to the ER, less other things. So I think wording and how you word things, you know, we have a, I own a minor league baseball team and we call our, our, one of our VPs, they're in charge of entertainment because that's what they're supposed to be doing. They, they, we could say they're in charge of marketing, well, but marketing, the consumer doesn't understand marketing. But when we say this person's in charge of making it a fun game, you know, there's a, I think a documentary out on Mike Veck right now on Bill Veck, and they used to talk about, you know, we're here to have fun. So, yeah, I think we have to look at how are we wording things so the patient understands it. You know, in rounding, one of the recommendations in rewiring comes from research from the University of Colorado that we ask a patient, what's your biggest concern or worry right now? We can get into what's going well and all this other stuff. We have time, but I want to know your biggest concern or worry because that's why you're not here because you're having a good day. I need to know what your biggest concern is. The reason they found this read, they found that only 25% of the time was the patient and the clinician on the exact same page. doesn't mean we're not in the same book, but we're not on the same page. So I want to know what your biggest concern or worry is right now. So when I got diagnosed two years ago with melanoma, I went into the surgeon with my malignant tumor. He said, when you heard you had cancer, what was your first thought? I said, I'm going to die. We went right to my concern and worry. He didn't get into education me. So I think what you're onto something, Reed, you've always been real bright on these types of things. I think you're exactly right. We have to take a step back and rewire. Now, if it's working, don't mess with it. Not working. Let's take a fresh look at it and let's try it. The other big variable for me, especially in my line of work over the last twenty years, has been the advancement with technology. Like I can't, I can't get through half a day without somebody talking about generative AI or something like that at this point. But even just smartphones, you know, the iPhone coming out in two thousand seven, and some of those types of things has changed the way that we interact with the consumer, with each other, um, it, it doesn't really matter. I, is that making it harder or has that changed your view of, of how we do what we do? I, I think it's, again, we have to be careful. I'm fine with it, but we have to be careful to become a transaction versus relationship. Some of our data is written as a transaction. So for example, I'll get a thing that says, your doctor's appointment is 115 on this date. Please put yes if you can make it. Wouldn't it be nice if they said, you know what? Your doctor wants to really be prepared for you when you're coming. So we want to make sure that we have everything ready for what you come. Are you going to come? Yes or no? Oh, okay. God, yeah. Thank you. You want to be prepared for me. Uh, my column this week, I read a column that goes out and you can you know, go on and line it. Line in. I was going into Austin, Texas to speak for the ACHE and I was staying at a Driscoll hotel and I wanted to hear Catherine Meese speak. She was speaking before me because she's so talented in trust and employee engagement. So even though I wasn't speaking till the next day, I flew in by noon so I could hear her in the afternoon. So I get off this plane and I get this text from Elena at the Driscoll hotel that says, you know, hey, we're excited to see you today. Can you sort of tell us about when you're going to arrive? Because we want to have, you know, and I got that room stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I texted her and said, I thought it was, I didn't think there wasn't a lane. I just thought that was a name using, by the way. But I'm okay with that. And I just said, yeah, I'm going to be there quite early. I'll probably be there before noon. 
However, I do not anticipate my room being ready. Don't worry about it. I can always check in later because I'm going to go to the deal. So I go up to the desk and there's Elena. And I said, this is all, I just thought this was like fake. And I said, I really appreciate this. And she said, well, you know what? Because we knew you were going to come early, we have your room ready for you. I thought that was pretty cool. Now, I'm going to speak at um, Becker's after that, and I'm on my way to Chicago. I get a note from the Sable Hotel that says, we're looking forward to seeing you today. <laughs> when are you going to arrive? And I said, well, I'm not going to arrive till probably after 9 p.m. tonight. Okay. So I, and I have a name, I go there, that person's not working, but I said, I really appreciate this because by me telling her nine, then they didn't, they could move some rooms around to get people in earlier. So I'm okay with technology, but I think, but now when I go to see my doctor, I really prefer to talk to a human being as much as possible because they explain it. So I, I think it's that fine line. I, I think it's, but I think sometimes we've, we've, be real careful because if I've got some app in front of me or some checklist, it should be to remind me of things, not that I should sit here and look at it and go over with you. So again, I, I think we got to walk that fine line because is it a transaction that's going to improve the relationship or is it a transaction that's going to hurt the relationship? Yeah. And back to, back to words, right? I mean, uh, just a simple phrasing you know, may make all the difference to your point. So um, I, I do think that's really interesting. We, we, we do live in a really cool time where we've got a certain demographic that would, uh, a lot of people have told me this, and I've heard this a number of times, if they have to talk to someone, something's gone wrong, right? I mean, a certain demographic, right? Especially as my son gets older, he's not interested in talking to anybody, right? So it's this DIY mentality with chat bots and texting and some of those types of things. And so I think having all of, you know, kind of pick your own adventure, but we've got to be able to fulfill what that is, right? Because to me, times I see the experience of scheduling an appointment online. Awesome. We did it. And now five months later, we cancel the appointment the day of, or, We've scheduled an appointment online and immediately get a phone call that that doctor's not seeing new patients. Well, then why did I, why, how, how does it let me book it online? So I think it's also opened up this opportunity to say, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Like, you know, you've really got to create an experience that makes sense uh, for folks. I think that's where turnover hurts us a lot. We've had so much turnover. So, example, I was in a healthcare system in Ohio, and of course, access is a big deal. So they were doing, we did table activities. So they had doctors and staff at tables and they gave them a, a scenario like, person calls up, here's what they're going through. They call up to the desk. And what they had is some real life examples of the person who answered the phone said, Dr. So-and-so, you can't get in for like three weeks, okay? But then the doctor read what was wrong and they said, well, gee, if they would have told me that, I would have either got them in or got them over to urgent care. But see, a more experienced person would have known that. An inexperienced person just follows this guideline. So I, I think this is where we're paying a price with the high turnover. Um, we just did a study. Um, here, here's some really cool stuff your listeners will like. We did a study, um, the study I talked about, Models of Care study. And they can go on our, our website, healthcareplussg.com, and read all the studies. Not, we made it so it's not proprietary. They can see it. Here's some things that showed up with nurses, inpatient nurses. Number one, the CNA is vital to their existence. So we have to take the CNA retention almost as seriously as we take physician retention if we want to nurse. Number two, which is a wake-up call. Because we're trying to reduce travel nurses so desperately, our most places, their charge nurses are in staffing right now. Well, we have 30% of our nurses have less than three years experience. That charge nurse is their lifeline, and we've just taken their lifeline away from them. So they really will feel the organization doesn't care about their well-being. So again, now here's the staffing issue. 74% of nurses feel they're doing more cleaning of rooms now because of environmental services have deteriorated. Well, if you look at environmental services, they have this high turnover right now. 
So when we talk about down offloading some things off nurses to other people, we better make sure the other people are there. <laughs> and the fourth element, and, and trust me, all your listeners, um, a lot of CEOs don't know this, but when I explain the research to them, they immediately step back and say, we got to get our charge nurses out of staffing. We've got to make sure our CNAs are happy. We got to relook at EVS, this issue of floating. For years, floating has been a common thing in healthcare. But with so many new nurses today and the whole work life balance, they don't want, they're scared to float. Now, it doesn't mean they, they shouldn't float, but we just can't say, go work on this unit. They might feel, you're putting me in a situation that I'm not prepared for with my skill set. So I sort of went off tangent with you, but I guess what I'm saying is we have to take time to look at things because I think sometimes we're doing things to solve one issue, like reduce travel agency, but we're causing a whole bunch of other issues that are probably more expensive to us in the long run than some travel agency costs. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you know, the time, the willingness to come on and, and visit for a few minutes. You mentioned the website. We'll certainly link to that in the show notes to make sure people can find the studies. Uh, Rewiring Excellence, uh, all your books are on there, but Rewiring Excellence is on there. I believe a free download, and so I'd encourage people to go check that out uh, and download that. And again, we'll, we'll link to that. But um, really, really appreciate the time, and, and uh, thanks for hanging out for a few minutes. Reed, I always, again, I appreciate you so much. I'm just, uh, I feel like a, a head coach that looks at the coaching tree and not that I had anything to do with your success only because I know your great wife, but uh, <laughs> I'll take credit for stuff I've had nothing to do with. So anyway. Well, um, I, I appreciate all the support through the years for sure. And, um, you know, I'm not sure even till, um, you know, all these years later, you know, it's really, really come to me what, you know, I, I got to experience when I first started around patient experience. And it's just, I never imagined it would, it would trend this direction, but it was, it was such a good resource. And everybody at the studio group was always very kind and, and, and you and others. And so I certainly appreciate it. Um, but thanks again. Thanks for coming on and we'll look forward to talking again soon. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Special thanks to Quint for coming on the show. It was nice. Uh, it was nice personally to catch up with him, uh, which was a lot of fun, but really appreciate his insights and certainly support uh, for not just me, but the industry and the show and, and everything. So um, really, really appreciate that and look forward to having him back sometime. All right. Uh, again, website, touchpoint.health, TPS report, survey coming out. Be on the lookout. Uh, let us know if you're going to be at HCIC. That's uh, just hours away at this point, right? I will be all over that. Yes, yes. So uh, hit us up. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way to do that. Let us know if you're going to be there. And then uh, we'll do a couple of recommendations before we get out of here. What do you What do you have today, Chris? Reed, you might hear in my voice a little bit. I'm a little bit congested. I just got, even though I got a, the flu shot this year, everyone in my household did, including my little boy, I was the one that caught the flu this weekend. So I, it wasn't as bad, but you know, it's the winter time, right? It's the season. There's something my wife said to me about mid through this, because I was feeling really bad and I was taking the medication. I just didn't want to take anymore. She said, have, why don't you make some golden milk? Have you ever heard of golden milk? No, I don't think so. I haven't heard of it either. And then I was like, so what is this? She goes, well, look it up. Golden milk is actually a combination of turmeric, milk, cinnamon, black pepper, and maple syrup, all boiled together onto a stove for about 10 minutes. And I'm going to tell you, it's one of the best homeopathic remedies. If you have like a cold or you're feeling a flu or whatever it might be, Make yourself some golden milk, I'm telling you. And I, I don't do dairy, so I did it with oat milk. 
tastes great with oat milk. You could do it with regular milk. You could do it with whatever. It's like yeah. a, a very homeopathic way to kind of in your, in a, on a on a cold day. If you just want a little warmth on the inside, you want to feel a little bit better. Make yourself some golden milk, and apparently it comes from India. I didn't know about this, but it was so simple to make. And I'm going to tell you, it was one of the best things ever. In fact, my wife and I were drinking it. My little boy wanted to taste some, and he enjoyed it. So I'm telling you, golden milk, that's my recommendation. That's going to get you through some of these cold winter days ahead. And so, Reed, I know you're in for a freeze flash coming up. You might want to make yourself some golden milk. There you go. Apparently. I like it. That's good. That's good. I'm going to have to, uh, to uh, try that. I've been on kind of a run of TV shows, I think, here lately. Although with my memory, I don't remember what I recommended last. However, Suits. Have you watched Suits? Did you watch Suits when it was out on TV? Like everybody else, I did never watch it when it was out on TV. But after Meghan Markle became really famous. Yeah. Well, I didn't even realize she was on the show. Like that didn't even, I just saw it recommended on Netflix because I guess it's gotten popular. Maybe they've added it back to Netflix here as of late or something. I don't know. But anyway, started watching it on on some of my last trips. I always look for stuff to download on, on, you watch on the airplane. And uh, it's good. I mean, 91 on Rotten Tomatoes. But anyway, it's for those that don't know, which I'm assuming everybody kind of has an idea of what it is, but it is. It's a New York law firm and it's all the goings on there. So I won't, won't spoil anything. But yes, Megan, the Duchess of whatever she is, uh, is on. <laughs> she's good, though. I mean, she's good. Everybody's well cast. It's uh, it's pretty enjoyable, especially if you like the kind of the episodic shows. I will warn you, it's like eight or nine seasons. So if you get invested in this thing, like buckle up, you're going to be there for a minute. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's worth it. You should check it out for sure. Well, I would definitely have to check it out. Suits is my uh, is my recommendation. So there you go. All right, folks. Well, thanks again. Uh, it is uh, always great uh, that you join us. Rate, review, subscribe. Certainly the best way that you can help us is to tell someone else about the show. So we love to hear from you as well and certainly appreciate all the support. Touchpoint.health is the website. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. Bye.